encourage you to turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. You guys remember the time that you moved out of your mom and dad's house? Hey, maybe that was a few years ago. Maybe that was pretty recently. Maybe you can't wait to move out. Maybe, mom and dad, you can't wait for your kid to move out, right? Leave the nest wherever you're at. That is a big moment in your life, right? I remember when I moved out, I was fresh out of college. I was 22 years old. And I accepted a worship pastor at his part-time. And I was going to work at Sherwin Williams uh, for like 32, 36 hours a week. And so that was, that was my gig, man. That was what I was going to be doing. And so I remember I was living in Kentucky. I was going to move to Michigan. So I'd loaded down my 06 Stratus. That thing was like dragging off the ground, right? I think my parents had a truck and they had like, you know, a six-foot trailer attached to the back of it. And we were driving up to Michigan. I had this like little one-bedroom apartment. You know, and, and you have your necessities. You have a TV, you have like a lawn chair, like a, a, a tray for food. That's it. That's all you need. You're a bachelor. That's all you need. Yeah. And then, you know, through going to Goodwill and going, you know, thrift shop and garage selling and all that fun stuff, you kind of fill out the apartment. And that's, that's a fun season. I don't know. It was for me. When I was a bachelor, I just worked. I just hustled. I was doing like 50, 60 hours a week, uh, serving the Lord doing all that fun stuff. But I remember on Christmas, the year I moved out, I went back home to Kentucky, and I visited mom and dad. And mom and dad, and, and dad actually said, hey son, grown man now, right? You're taking care of yourself. Pretty soon you're going to be married, going to take care of a family one day. Uh, you're going to need to fix stuff. You're going to need to put stuff together. And so I'm going to give you some tools to get you going. This isn't a full tool set, but this is the tools that you need to get going. And so the text this morning, James wisely and pastorally reaches out to the early church and says, hey, the Lord has supernaturally saved you. He has sovereignly worked in your life. He's given you the faith, but he's called you to be obedient, to trust in him, and to grow in your faith. And so, church, I want to give you three tools, three tools to help you grow in your faith. So let's read the text this morning. We're in James chapter 1. We'll read through verse 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But hear this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is good, and that we can build our lives upon it. So, Lord, as we've sung that you are a holy, undefeatable God, that you are good, let us see that you are all that you said you will be. Lord, let us see your truth. Guide us by it. May may the Holy Spirit enlighten it. And Lord, may we be changed by it. Humble our hearts as, as we come to your truth. And God, may we live informed by it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So, the first tool that James gives to the early church is joy in suffering. Joy in suffering. Let's reread verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Honestly, this is a really easy thing to understand, but if we're honest, this is really hard to live out. Because what, what is he saying? He's saying, you know what? In pain and suffering, find joy in that. And it's not an if statement. If you face trials, it's a when statement. You know, Christians, we're going to face struggle. We're going to face suffering. I'm not preaching anything new or novel to you, right? You understand that the world is against the things of God. The world is against truth. You see this day in and day out. Jesus warned us of this in John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So persecution, pain, suffering is commonplace for the Christian. And think about the original audience. Think about who James was specifically writing to. He was writing to the very first church. He was writing to the the OG in Jerusalem, okay? Right? The apostles were doing very important ministry. They were going out. They were spreading the gospel. They were performing miracles. They were doing what God had called them to do. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, had stayed behind. And he was serving and shepherding and pastoring these people. But obviously, they're facing persecution, okay? So, you know the Apostle Paul, right? The guy who wrote, like, a bunch of the New Testament. Before he was Paul, many of you know this, he was Saul, In Acts 9, he was described as breathing out murderous threats against Christians. What does that mean? Every single breath, every thought was bent on, how can I eradicate, how can I exterminate Christians? 
And so that's the persecution that the church was facing. And so because of this, the early church were spread out into house churches. They were dispersed into house churches. So right out of the gate was James telling the church, hey, you know how you lost your job? You know how you lost your house? You know how there's that one family, um, their husband went to the market and he got arrested. We don't know when he's coming back. Hey, there's this other family. I don't know if they're going to have food. You know, you know these situations? Find joy in them. How? How on earth, like if we're honest, how can we find joy in that? Let's, let's keep reading in verse 3. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word testing here has the same idea as, as gold being melted down and refined. Like melting away dross from gold. Okay, any Forged in Fire fans? Anybody? Am I the only nerd in the room? Okay, maybe. All right, yes, thank you. So, let me tell you what Forged in Fire is. So you get four bladesmiths together, okay? It's on the History Channel, it's amazing. Uh, they get four bladesmiths together, and they're tasked with making a knife. And usually, or a sword, or something cool, and it's a sword from history. And so... Usually they give them this mangled piece of metal. And for those who don't know, there's hardenable steel and there's non-hardenable steel. Okay, and the non-hardenable steel is uh, stuff you don't want on your cutting edge. If that's on the cutting edge, it's going to bend, it's going to break, it's just not good. So what do bladesmiths do? They heat up the billet, they start drawing it out. Heat it up, they start drawing it out. They start forging out the shape of a knife. Well, you don't want mild steel on your cutting edge. So you start grinding that thing off. You start grinding that thing. You start shaping that into a knife. That's, that's the metaphor being conveyed here. Christian, we're grinding off the creature comforts. We're grinding off the things of this world to shape you more into what God would have you be. And, and in verse 4, we see the result of testing. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christian, let me tell you today that there is purpose in your pain. You may be sitting here today, and it took all the strength you could possibly muster just to get into the facility. And just kind of hang out for two hours, but then you go home. And you have just as many questions and just as many struggles. And if we're honest with the text, if we're honest with God, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we say, God, why? Why are you doing this? Right? Why is all of this stuff in my life? I don't understand. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? And we see the struggle, and we see the pain, and we see the hurt, and we're saying, God, why are you allowing this trial in my life? And God says, because I am enough. I am good. And my steadfast love endures forever. So you may not see the whole picture. You may only see just this little bit, but trust me. I'm grinding away the stuff. I'm grinding away the junk. I'm grinding away the idols in your life so you can be held fast in my grip, so you can be held to my side, and you can know that I am good. 
That is what the Lord is doing in these trials and in these struggles. So Christian, I don't know your pain. I don't know what you're going through. But know there is purpose in the pain. God works all things for your good and for his glory. Many of you know and love the song, It Is Well With My Soul, right? It's a hymn that we sing periodically. You love the song, but, but maybe you don't know the story behind it. So the guy who wrote it was a guy by the name of Horatio Spofford. He was a guy who lived in the 1850s. So he lived in Chicago. He had a, a wife, two girls, and, and a son. And so there was a fire that went through, burned down his house, burned down his livelihood, and he lost his son due to smoke inhalation. So he's processing that grief. He's processing the loss. He's just reeling from that. He says, you know what? He tells his wife and girls, hey, tell you what, let's just go to England. Let's just get away from all this for a second. Let's just kind of process. Let's grieve together. Let's just get away. And so like the dad, like the administrator, he's going to take care of business back in the house. He's going to take care of everything. You guys go ahead and enjoy yourselves. So as they're sailing the ship capsizes due, due to shaky waters. And he loses his daughters in that, in that trip to England. So his wife makes it, but he loses all of his children. So he says, oh, I, just have to get, I just have to get to England. I just have to get to my wife. So he goes, he, he sails, and they stop in that general area where, where the ship capsized and As he's processing grief, he says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billow roll, whatever my lot, what? You have taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. Christian, we we, we don't understand why we're going through something. We don't see the the bigger picture of, of the story that God is writing Right, God exists outside of time. God holds all things in his mighty grip and he's using things for our good and for his glory, right? So as we're struggling, as we face the reality of sin, as we face the reality of struggle, know that he is with us. And whatever our lot, we can learn to say, it is well, it is well with our soul. And this verse, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing in our life. But when our race is complete, we'll be able to finally see our faith fully realized. We'll have unhindered fellowship with Jesus. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be joy in the everlasting arms of Jesus. So as we sojourn on, as we struggle through this, May we be a people that have a different perspective on suffering, a a different perspective on trials. Honestly, it's easy to talk about that type of stuff here in church, but like on Tuesday morning when we haven't had our coffee and traffic's awful and our kids, we fought with them and it was just a whole mess and now we're at work and we're late and we forgot to do something and we're really, really frustrated at ourselves. It's hard. It is hard to have a kingdom perspective. I struggle with viewing suffering in that way. And I'm sure that you struggle with viewing suffering and finding joy in it. I think James understands the weight of that. 
and, and so he says, hey, we need wisdom. <laughs> we need maturity. We need to grow in understanding of the Lord. And so the second tool of the faith we find is godly wisdom. Let's read it again in verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So right out of the gate, in verse 5a, the first half of verse 5, we see the command to ask for wisdom, the command. And this isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just like a life hack, right? It's not a, okay, after you finish your pros and cons list, you should probably ask God for wisdom. No, the verb is an imperative. You must ask for wisdom. But, but if we think about that, and if we kind of get out of this context, and we're honest, like, why? Why is it so important that we ask for wisdom? Well, we see in this passage, we see the benefits of wisdom, and we also see the unfortunate consequences of relying on our own wisdom and our own knowledge. So first off, let's see the benefits, the second half of verse 5. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, first off, in asking God for wisdom, we experience the Father heart of God. God will lavish us with his wisdom. God will pour out his wisdom upon us. He loves his children. Right? He's going to give to us without conditions. Without, hey, you're going to visit me more? He's not going to ask for conditions. He's not going to say, hey, I'm going to give you this, but you've got to do this. No, he's going to give no strings attached. And he pours out his wisdom onto his children because he loves his children. We also see that God doesn't reprimand his children. There's no dumb question. Isn't that amazing? Let's be honest, like, we're going to ask dumb questions. Like, we just, we just have dumb questions. Regardless of how smart we are, there's going to be something that we think that's just silly. And God doesn't say, goodness, why did you ask that? He says, come on. Let me help you guide. Let me guide you through this. You know, having kids, I have a four, four and a half year old and a two year old, and right, so we have, both those kids have obviously learned to walk by God's grace, and it's great. It's wonderful. Maybe it's too wonderful, because one of my kids are part raccoon, and they just get into everything now. He's like, I'm going to climb everything. <laughs> he just runs, and he's just, he's just a trouble. He's wonderful. He's a troublemaker, though. But when they're learning to walk, when your kids are learning to walk, they don't just take a few steps, and then they just fall over, Right? It's not like, doo doo, boom. And then what do you, what do you do when your kid falls over? You say, you foolish child, come on! Your brother was walking by, come on! You should be Usain Bolt right now. Come on, guys. No. If you're that, you're a terrible parent. Let's just be honest. <laughs> you're not gonna treat your kid like that. 
You're going to say, hey, awesome job. Thank you. Good job. Keep going. And in this, in asking for wisdom, we experience the Father heart of God. We experience his love. We say, come, he says, come home. Let's walk you through this. Let me guide you through this. And we also see the unfortunate consequences of relying on our own wisdom, relying on our own understanding. Let's reread verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So we see three unfortunate consequences in following our own wisdom. Number one, you see the indecisive Christian. The indecisive Christian. This person kind of acts like a married couple after church. Hey, dear, uh, what do you want to eat? I don't know. We need to save money, so maybe, I don't know. Okay, so what about like Arby's? Okay, do we have coupons? Arby's is weirdly expensive. Should we have, no, we don't have the coupons. Coupons are income. Okay, okay. Uh, Taco Bell, T-Bell. Dear, we're not in our 20s anymore. That's going to give me the, that's, that's bad. No. Okay, okay. Uh, McDonald's. Nope. No, actually, I would be saying McDonald's. So, McDonald's. Nope, nope. Kids have run us, burns us out of McDonald's. What about Chick-fil-A? Uh, but it's Sunday. We can't have Chick-fil-A even if it was here. You get the point, right? You have this indecisiveness going on. And we see that in Christians' life. We see Christians who say, hey, you know what? I'm going to exalt my experience. I'm going to exalt my knowledge. We, we all do this. We, we exalt our knowledge. We exalt ourself. And we have that as kind of the king of, of all of our knowledge. And we kind of want to sprinkle in truth. Or, or maybe we hear truth. But then we end up practically looking like a wave in the ocean. Hey, I want to follow this. I really want to follow this. Oh, I, I need to do... He's just back and forth, back and forth. So you see a Christian who's indecisive. You also see a Christian who's at war with themselves. A Christian who's at war with themselves. Um, two, it, it, let me look at the words here, hold on. Double-minded literally translates as two-souled. And we experience this reality as a Christian, right? Because when we're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us, right? We have new nature. We have new affections. We have a new appetite for the things of the Lord. We also have our old nature, right? We have uh, the old nature that pulls us away from God. And we have that war within us. But when we try to just strive and do our own thing, and we focus on our own wisdom as opposed to godly wisdom, it's as if we are tearing ourselves in half and trying to make two whole people. We are literally two-souled when we try to rely on our own wisdom. And you see that as, as like a Christian, right? Like you see people who, who have that veneer. They're like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. But man, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no contentment in their life. And that's the unfortunate consequence. And then Finally, we just end up making poor decisions, 
right? We just end up making poor decisions, and, and we, we go through pain, and we go through trouble, um, and we, we just hurt other people. And here's the beautiful thing, right? God is not surprised by the decision that you make. He's not surprised by the decision that I make. He's still in control. He can still work and he can still do all things, right? In, in Genesis fifty twenty, we read, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God can still work. God's not surprised by the decisions. But we are still responsible for the decisions we make. We're just responsible for our actions and we're called to honor the Lord with our actions and to seek godly wisdom. Okay, so how do we, how do we like practically live this out, right? Because you guys are going to be faced with decisions. There's going to be a fork in the road and you're going to be like, okay, how do I wisely walk through this? So number one, here's what I would encourage you with. God is never going to speak contrary to scripture. God is not going to speak contrary to his word. God has given us his word and so we are called to follow that. So in seeking wisdom, our next step is seeking his word. What has he clearly commanded us to do in his word? But, okay, let's, let's be honest. Some decisions are a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay, do I take this job or do I take that job? Do I go to this school or do I take this school? Right? There's some, do I buy this car or do I buy that car? Do I buy this house or do I buy that? Right? So there's a little bit more nuanced. There's not a verse and chapter and chapter and verse and all that. So continue to seek the Lord. Hey, do we, do we pray as if God's really going to answer prayers? I mean, like, if God answered our prayer that we prayed last night, would we know it? Like, if he answered every single one of your prayers from yesterday, would you know it? May we pray with specificity. May we seek the Lord because he truly is a good, gracious, generous father. Right? So, as we seek the Lord, as, as we read his word, we say, hey, there's some specific situations. Go back to him and pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, test my motives, test my attitudes. God, help me. Is there a decision that you get most glorified in? I want to do that. I want to go that route. And so, as we make these decisions, may these be our metrics. Lord, may you be glorified God, test my motives, test my thoughts, test my attitudes, convict me of sin. I want to glorify you, and God, I want to be obedient to your word. So we have one tool, joy and suffering. We have a second tool, godly wisdom. And finally, ooh, this is tough, we have a third tool, contentment. Contentment. Let's read verses 9 through 11 together. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what is James doing? He's comparing and contrasting Christians. He, he basically equates Christians to those who are humble, and then he equates those who are non-Christians to rich people. Is it wrong to be rich? No. We're going get, to get there. But first, let's focus on the life and end of the Christian. And once again, James is calling this church to this radical, counter-cultural, counter-intuitive way of thinking. He's saying, hey, you know what? 
I know that you've lost everything. I know that you're struggling. But rejoice and be exalted in the fact that you are in this state. Man, that's hard to live out. That really is hard to live out because, man, if you see uh, somebody who's far away from God, who's just living their best life, who goes to like Disney every other weekend, I don't see the value. Maybe somebody sees the value in that. But they're going to Disney every other weekend. And they're, they're, they're going to Applebee's like a date night every single night, right? It's like, what is going on? I really, really struggle with that. The psalmist echoes this injustice in Psalms 73, verses 3 through 5. Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5, and then 16 uh, and 17. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperous prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Apparently, bougie people back in the day were like seals. I don't know. That's cool. (laughs) That's a dumb dad joke. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Uh, They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Like the psalmist, James pastorally and carefully reminds people that we know the end of our stories and theirs. Because we have Christ, we can exalt because we can have everlasting life with him. And and unfortunately, we see the unfortunate reality of those who are far from Christ. And and these people aren't villains. These people aren't bad people. They're probably well-respected in the community. They're probably making a difference. They follow Dave Ramsey's seven baby steps, man. They're diversified. They have passive income, and they also have like a little side hustle. They're, They're good, morally good people. Yet... Those good things have become God things. And if that's all there is, and if that's all they're pursuing, it's all going to burn up in the end. Now, let me, let me back up. Is there anything wrong with working hard? No. Is there anything wrong with having good things? No. Is there anything wrong with, like, working up the ladder and getting a better job? No. Work hard. Work hard for God's glory. Be a light in your community, Right? But if that's our idol, it's going to burn up. And I think this is the quintessential issue in the American church. We want to be the humble guy, and we also want to trace after grass that burns up. We want to be both. We want to have God, but we also want to chase after goodness. And think about it like, if we're not facing visceral persecution... If we're not like the church in North Korea, if we're not the church in Pakistan and Afghanistan, man, what is that struggle? What, what are we going to be constantly at war with? Man, I, I want that. I struggle, man. Come on. I, if I just, you know, if I have that, man, then I'll be happy. So how do we fight against that? How do we war against that? How do we find contentment? In our souls, we remind ourselves of our estate, and we also 
run our race well. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He says, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. Lord, let me be a good steward. Let me work hard. Let me be the best I possibly can be. Let me, let me strive to glorify you in my work. But Lord, let me put blinders in my life. Let me put blinders and let me focus on my citizenship in heaven. Let me store up for myself treasures in heaven where moth and dust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. For there my treasure is, my heart will be also. We set aside all the junk. We set aside all the treasure. We set aside all the things that's going to burn away. And we fix our joy and our attention on Jesus. And we say, Lord, it's a struggle. Day in and day out, this is a struggle. But Lord, help me to have that focus. Help me to be content with what you've given me and help me to run my race well. So Christian, these three tools may be simple to understand, but we got a lot of work to do. You know what? If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a struggle right now, know this. That the Lord is working in you. He's strengthening your faith. And he's drawing you closer to his side. It doesn't feel like that. Trust me. The Lord is drawing you. And you can find your hope in peace. He is all he said he would be. So view your trial in that. Maybe you have a decision to make. Maybe you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the next step? Ask God. It's as simple as that. Ask the Lord, and he will lavish it upon his children. He will lavish wisdom. He will give that to you. Or maybe we're just struggling with self-sufficiency. We're saying, hey, you know what? Dave Ramsey's awesome. I love Dave Ramsey. I'm all for him. But if we are all in on Dave Ramsey, and that's, that's our idol in our life, we need to set that aside for a little bit. We say, you know what? I want to fix my joy and attention on you and you alone. Yes, I want to be a good steward of what you've given me. I want to be a good steward of what you entrusted me. But I want to fix my joy on Jesus and be content and run my race. Wherever we're at this morning, may we respond to the truth of Scripture. And maybe you're here and you're just kind of trying out the whole church thing. You're just kind of kicking the tires. Right? You're like, okay, uh, let's see what this Christianity thing is all about. Listen, none of this makes sense unless we have Christ. That's the first step. So let me briefly tell you what that means. We're all sinful people. We're all broken, sinful people. We're all far from God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Because we're sinful people, we deserve the full wrath of God. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from him. And there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's not enough church we can attend. There's not enough things we can do in the community to earn our salvation. Jesus saw our helplessness. He, He saw our hopelessness and came to earth fully God, fully man. He was tempted in every way that we were, but was without sin. He died, and three days later, he rose again. 
So what we do in order to become a Christian, we say, you know what? I'm the boss of my life right now. God, I want you to be the boss of my life. I want to follow after you. I believe that Jesus is the only way. I want to turn my life to him. I want to surrender my life to him, and I want to follow after you. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So wherever we're at this morning, whatever we are processing, whatever we're doing, may we respond to the truth of Scripture. I'm going to pray. It's going to lead us in a song. We're going to sing through the whole song. I love the last verse of this song. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this, I hold my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's re- let me pray. And we'll respond together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it's an easy word to understand, but a hard word to live out. So God, help us to take one step towards honoring you. God, help us to take one step in godliness. And whatever that step is for us, may we be faithful to do it. God, guide us in your truth. Help us to be conformed more into the image of your son and help us as a church to love one another, to encourage one another, and to be bold in our witness. Guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.